My four sisters and I spent a lot of time outside when we were growing up. I think I know why, because my parents are like, go outside and play. Uh, We played hide and seek and kickball and dodgeball and Simon Says and even Red Rover. We ran all over the neighborhood. We had free reign. We could cut through backyards. We could tear up our neighbor's front yards. The only restriction we had, though, was we were not allowed to even step on our next-door neighbor's lawn. Uh, He had a fantastic lawn, and we were not allowed to go over there. It was as if there was this thick brick wall on our lot lines. Now, there weren't any keep-out signs posted, but the man we nicknamed as Uncle Dudley was known to use a pellet gun to shoot birds when they ate his strawberries, so we didn't want to take any chances on becoming target practice. You know, there are a lot of dividing lines in our culture today. Perhaps you have walls up with somebody in your own family today. Maybe your spouse. Perhaps you've been erecting barriers and you're adding bricks and you're making that thicker and Well, we see that in our culture also related to politics with all the mudslinging between Republicans and Democrats ramping up as we get closer to November. We're also prone to divide over race, ethnicity, and class, not to mention wars which take place between countries. On top of all this, uh, some of us are, are dealing with some personal things And conflict is like a brick wall, and sometimes that wall is so high and so thick that it appears to be impenetrable. Well, in our passage today, we're going to see how Jesus breaks down divisions and how Jesus brings peace in the midst of the hostility that you and I harbor toward other people. People. Let's give our undivided attention now. If you'd open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. I'm going to invite you to stand and let's continue in worship as we read Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And we're walking through Ephesians verse by verse. Uh, to see what God would have for us individually, but also for us as a church. And so let's read together and do so reverently and also with great joy because we serve a God who has spoken and he's put what he wants us to know in his word. It's inspired, it's inerrant, and it's authoritative, which means when God says it, that settles it. So let's read together. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You can be seated. So one of the major disputes in the early church, well, it wasn't over the color of carpeting. It wasn't over music styles. No, the conflict was actually cultural because the gospel was exploding among different ethnic groups. And so ethnically diverse congregations were causing those from a Jewish background to have coronaries. (laughs) And as a result, the church in Jerusalem had its first business meeting. Well, you can read about that in Acts chapter 15. And here was the issue. Do Gentiles, a Gentile is a non-Jewish person, do Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? Well, here's what they decided, that everyone could maintain their own ethnicity, their own cultural distinctives, and yet be enfolded into one racially diverse community called the church. And when this decision was written down and circulated in a letter, you can read that in Acts 15, 31, people from different backgrounds, we read, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And so those from a Gentile background didn't have to follow all the rules and the laws. So later on, Peter, who came from a Jewish background, now starts to enjoy his newly found food freedom. And I picture him eating bacon-wrapped little Smokies (laughs) with some Greek guys at a Super Bowl party. (laughs) He's having a good time, even though the Packers aren't playing. (laughs) But when Jewish background believers find out that Peter is eating food that he shouldn't be eating according to them. Peter stuffed his bacon under the couch cushion and defaulted to the prejudice in his heart. So friends, let me say this in a similar way. You and I are tempted to drift back to judgmental separatism. And here's our main idea. Because of our union with Christ, our differences are put to death so that we can live in communion with one another. Well, join me as we walk through this passage. First of all, let's remember we were alienated in the past. 
Verse 11, we're called to remember. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. That word therefore takes us back to our passage last week, verses 1 through 10, which focused on our personal reconciliation with God. Today, we're going to see how Jesus brings corporate reconciliation on the horizontal level. Or we could say it like this, because we're reconciled with God, we must be reconciled with one another. The word remember means to recall, to mark, to set aside. In the Bible, remembering is not just bringing something back to mind like, oh, I forgot, now I remember. No, it implies a change of behavior. So our lives line up with what we've been reminded of. Remembering is not a passive attitude in the Bible. It's this proactive activity which leads to action. We're to ponder something and then put it into practice. We're called to remember so we can recalibrate our lives according to what's being remembered. So Paul is writing to a church that was in danger of dividing into two distinct groups. Both sides confessed Christ, but the divisions between them were deeply rooted in centuries of animosity. And so the issue threatening to divide the early church was the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. So the Jews were marked as God's covenant people by circumcision. And they were proud of that. If they had social media back then, they would have used the hashtag circumcision. The Jews called Gentiles dogs. And they believed that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. The Greeks, well, they hated everyone who wasn't like them, referring to any non-Greek as a barbarian and the Jews as their mortal enemies. Well, now they're in the same church. (laughs) And Kent Hughes writes, the collision of Jewish Gentile exclusiveness was monumental. Notice verse 12 contains another call to remember because we're prone to forget. So he's addressing the Gentiles here, which would be, my guess, almost all of us here, anyone non-Jewish, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, Without God in the world, it's good to be reminded of five things we once lived without. Without Christ, we were separated from Christ. Without citizenship, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The word alienated means estranged, far away, excluded. Without covenants, no hope, and without God. About a month ago, I received a phone call from a friend who I know from my college days at Madison. Uh, Tom and I have stayed in touch over the years. Uh, Tom knows me really well. (laughs) Tom knew me before I became a Christian. Tom was praying for me when I was a freshman at Madison and then the beginning of my sophomore year when God had me room with a Christian. 
And so Tom was praying for me for a long time while my life was imploding. He also prayed for my roommate Bruce to be able to put up with me. And after I came to Christ, we became close friends and we've stayed in touch ever since. He was here for our prophecy conference. Well, just recently, the reason for the phone call is Tom and his wife, Jeannie, started attending a church in Watertown, Wisconsin, which is where I grew up. That's my hometown. They got together with the pastor at this new church that they were attending, and they, Tom was just talking because this pastor is also from Watertown, and Tom said, hey, do you remember a guy named Brian Bill? And here's what this pastor said, and I quote, yeah, I knew Brian when he was a pagan. <laughs> it's hard to believe he's now a pastor. Well, I called this pastor a couple days later, and we both had a good time remembering what I used to be like. He told me things I did that I don't even remember doing when I was in high school. We both celebrated the grace of the gospel and how God can turn a pagan into a pastor. And God can change any one of us for his glory. So friends, remember, at one time, you were alienated from Christ. Number two, or because of our union with Christ then, our differences are put to death so we can live in communion with one another. Number two, rejoice that we are reconciled in the presence. Notice how verse 13 begins. But now... Okay, go back to what we discovered last week. Verse four says, but God. Well, last week we were dead in our sins. We are depraved, we're disobedient. The picture's terrible. But God, being rich in mercy. And we have these cards available if it would be helpful for you to pick one up just as a reminder. But God, well here in this passage, but now, this is what you used to be like. You were alienated, but now. Both of these phrases speak of the gracious intervention of God to reach and reconcile lost sinners. So in the midst of really bad news, God delivers some really good news. Oh, savor this verse, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, the problem of sinners in general is spiritual death, and the problem with Gentiles in particular is spiritual distance from God. Verse 14 tells us both Jews and Gentiles are reconciled by Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Oh, observe that phrase, he himself. In the Greek, that's powerfully emphatic. It's designed to get our attention. Christ is our peace, and he's the peacemaker, making both groups one by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, this is graphic language. 
And it's referring to the wall that separated the court of Gentiles from the rest of the temple in Jerusalem. So the gospel is like dynamite designed to destroy this dividing wall. Well, let me see if I can explain it. Here's a picture of the temple. This is often called Herod's temple, which was like a renovation of Solomon's temple made bigger and higher and and, and took a long time to build. But if you look at the far right, uh, that's where the Gentiles could go. It was called the Gentiles courtyard. And there was a big wall. They could go no further. As you go closer then, you have the women's courtyard. That's where the women could go, but then no further. And then there was the court of the Israelites where Israelite men could go, but no further. And then the courtyard of the priests where the priests could go. And then right at the center, in the holy of holies, only one priest could go. Once a year, on the day of atonement, the very structure of the temple communicated separation. And so we could look at these walls like keep out signs and the wall separating Gentiles from even entering the temple. Well, there were some signs posted along the outer wall at regular intervals to warn Gentiles that they were unfit to enter this sacred space. And two of these keep out signs have survived to this day. The most complete of the two was discovered on the Temple Mount in 1871. And here's how it reads, quote, no alien may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. Now, the Apostle Paul knew all about this barrier because actually he was falsely accused and then put in prison for bringing an Ephesian Gentile, his name was Trophimus, into the temple courts. He actually didn't do that, but people saw him with this Gentile, and so he was arrested and imprisoned. You can read about that in Acts chapter 21. Brothers and sisters, get this truth. Christ has ripped down the barrier by his death. And because of the cross, we can now cross the divide and draw near to God and draw near to each other. Oh, there's more. There was a separating curtain from the holy place to the holy of holies. That curtain, that thick curtain was torn in two from top to bottom granting everyone unfettered access to the Almighty at all times, no matter their race, no matter their rank, no matter their religiosity. All that happened when Jesus died. Matthew chapter 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This signified that the sacrifice of Jesus provided atonement for sins and the Holy of Holies is now open for all people, for all time. 
for both Jew and Gentile. In 1987, former President Ronald Reagan gave a pivotal speech at the Brandenburg Gate in Germany. Here's part of what he said. Behind me stands a wall that encircles the free sectors of this city. Part of a vast system of barriers that divides the entire continent of Europe. Then he paused and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Two years later, the East German government announced that East Berliners could pass through the wall to visit people in the West. A celebration broke out. People started chipping away at the wall, which was eventually dismantled completely, leading to the reunification of Germany in 1990. Now, in a similar way, Jesus tore down the wall of separation. In fact, the temple's not even there anymore after AD 70. Tore down that wall of separation between us and God as well as the fences that you and I put up between ourselves and people who are different from us. Christ's death brought down the wall of hostility in three ways. His death fulfilled the law of Moses. His death created a new humanity. Kent Hughes writes, this is the answer to alienation, to racism, to prejudice, to hatred, to estrangement, and he reconciled the new humanity to God. The word reconcile means to bring together again. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Oh, would you observe the word peace is found four times in three verses. It refers to harmony where once strife and hatred existed. The Greek word used here comes from the Hebrew shalom, which means wholeness, oneness, and reconciliation. So, who are those who are far off? Well, they're the Gentiles. Those who are near are the Jews. And because both groups stand in need of reconciliation. Uh, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 57, 19. Peace, peace to the far, to the Gentiles. God's always had a heart for the Gentiles. And by the way, his plan was to use the Jewish people to reach the Gentiles. That didn't go so well. To the far and to the near, says the Lord. And the pathway to peace is the same for both Jew and Gentile. This is stated clearly in Romans 3.30. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. <clears throat> I like how one commentator captured it. It was not a question of the Gentile becoming a Jew to become a Christian, but the Jew admitting he was a sinner just like the Gentile. Verse 18 states that everyone who comes to faith in Christ has full and equal access to God. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The word access speaks of privilege. It was used of addressing one superior, of being able to come boldly into the presence of someone and to have full access without worry. 
Oh, my mind went back to the neighborhood in which I grew up. So on one side, like keep out signs, two houses away, a man whose name was Frank Kieser had a lot of tools, a lot of power equipment in his garage. Frank let it be known to all the neighbors that his garage was always open and anybody could borrow a tool at any time without even having to ask. I mean, I have memories of my dad when my dad was working on a project. He'd say, hey, Brian, go down and get Frank's biggest pipe wrench. (laughs) And I'd go down and come back with the pipe wrench. And that was Frank. So we had open access. Now, note how the entire Trinity is involved in creating this access. Him, Jesus, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and Father, Romans 5.2 says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. Friends, we don't have to approach God timidly or through performance or through penance. Ephesians 3.2, in whom we have boldness and access. So born again believers can come with confidence through our faith in him. Because of our union with Christ, our differences are put to death so we can live in communion with one another. Okay, so this is where all this is going in this passage now. We're called to reflect on some practical results of being unified. After remembering our plight and rejoicing in the peace Jesus brings, we're challenged to reflect on four practical results of our unity. Well, let's observe. This is set up by the first two words of verse 19. Do you see those two words? So then. So then. This could be translated as consequently. Well, let's put the passage together. Notice verse 11 says, therefore, based on verses 1 through 10, therefore, remember. Remember what you used to be like. And then we come to verse 13. But now, here's what's true right now. Now, what does that mean? So then, well, here's the first. We are fellow citizens. First result of reconciliation, first part of verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Even after becoming Christ followers, many Jewish background believers doubted whether Gentile believers were on the same spiritual plane as they were. And Paul made it clear that those who are saved have moved from strangers to fellow citizens of heaven. Next, we're family members. The second half of verse 19 celebrates how we are now fellow members of God's family and we make up the household of God with the saints and members of the household of God. I think back to what Jesus said. He's speaking to his disciples in John chapter 10, verse 16, and he helps them to not just think of fellow Jews that Jesus came for, but to think that he came for people all over the world. Listen to what Jesus said. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. (laughs) That means if you've been saved by grace through faith, every born-again believer is now, well, now your spiritual sibling. 
First Timothy 5, 1 and 2 calls us to treat older saints as fathers and mothers, younger believers as brothers and sisters. So that means if you're born again, you're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. You are my people, and we're all on the same team. You see, family is the place where you can be yourself and be assured that you are accepted. It reminds me of the movie, Remember the Titans. That's about a football team with both white and black players on it. And so as the movie begins, even though they're both on the same team, they don't have a team going on. The blacks and whites don't get along. They don't trust one another. There's a lot of competition, a lot of backbiting, a lot of division because of racial differences until a scene in the movie where it's no longer white and black players. There's a moment they all become titans and they start functioning as one. Observe next, we're fitted together to grow. Verses 20 and 21, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Christ is the cornerstone that gives stability and direction to the building while God used the apostles and prophets to provide a foundation of faith before the Bible was put together to the first followers and the first phrase joined together means to frame and fit together exactly. (laughs) That means you have a role here, and as you live it out, we will grow as a church. Consider 1 Peter 2.4, Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Very next verse celebrates how the saints of God are living stones. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul repeated the word one four times to emphasize the unifying work of Christ. The Bible says that in Christ, all walls have been broken down. Walls of separation have been broken down and he's made everyone one. And as a result, everyone has full and complete access. The word for one means new, kind, unprecedented, novel, unheard of. Ephesians 2.14, he made us both one. Verse 15, created himself one new man. Verse 16, in one body. Verse 18, in one spirit. I was reminded what I did with the staff on my very first day here 10 and a half years ago. I've told this before. We're all seated around the conference table and I got a hold of a big white rope, a long white rope, and they're all seated and I put the rope on the table and I said, okay, I want everyone to tie themselves up with this white rope rope. Wrap it around your wrist. The person next to them wrapped it around their wrist. And when we were all tied together, I read Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, using this as a visual demonstration and unity and the unity and togetherness of our team, I asked one of the pastors to fall backwards in his chair. 
And he kind of looked at me. They're, actually, they're all kind of stunned. My first day, I'm tying up the staff. <laughs> and now I'm telling him to fall backwards. So he does. But because he's tied to two people next to him, he doesn't hit the floor. He doesn't fall off his chair. And the two next to him end up holding him up and actually helping him get back up. See, it showed how we function best when we serve as a team because we all have a part to play. We don't shoot our own wounded. We help the wounded. And Edgewood has always been a united place. And friends, you and I must be eager to maintain the unity because it can easily unravel in a church. Finally, we're the framework in which God dwells. Verse 22 contains a mind-blowing thought. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Whoa, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says the Holy Spirit dwells within individual believers. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? And if that truth totally gripped us, we would live differently. We would speak differently, we'd think differently, and we'd behave differently. Because the Holy Spirit's inside of us and we are his temple. Oh, but there's more. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says the Holy Spirit dwells within the church. Not within this physical space. Well, certainly the Holy Spirit is here. But this verse is speaking of the Holy Spirit dwelling within his church, his people. Do you not know, that's plural, that you church are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural, the church. Well, what does all this mean? How can we apply this? Well, number one, let's make sure we root out all racism and prideful prejudice in our hearts. Christians are now part of one body, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, or background. Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, settle this. The gospel of grace trumps race. Jesus Christ has restored and reconciled the races, so in that sense, there's no longer two or 10 or 20 or 20,000. There's now one. You see, before Jesus, there were two ethnic groups on earth, Jew and Gentile. And after his resurrection and the launch of the church, a new group was formed made up of Jews and Gentiles, where Paul says, our one new man or the church. One author says it like this, racial harmony is a blood issue, not just a social issue. The bloodline of Jesus Christ is deeper than bloodlines of race. So I don't know what you're thinking right now because this topic certainly in our culture stirs people up, but let's consider this, brothers and sisters, what James chapter 2, verse 9, and just think about this verse and let it percolate in your own heart. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Or as former NFL player Benjamin Watson has said, we don't have a skin problem, 
we have a sin problem. I love the picture of multiple people groups praising God together. Revelation 5.9, this is where we're headed. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Listen, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So in that sense, our worship here is but a dress rehearsal for worship up there. When all reconciled races will gather around the throne to worship the lamb who was slain. Second application, see other believers as your spiritual siblings. There's a member here at Edgewood, and whenever I speak to her, she doesn't call me Brian, which I'm cool with. She doesn't call me Pastor Brian. She calls me Brother Brian. It always makes me smile because it reminds me that she is my spiritual sister, Well, perhaps we should start greeting each other like this, like, hi, Brother Bob, or how are you, Sister Susie? Hey, one advantage of this is when you forget someone's name, you can just say, hey, brother, (laughs) hey, sister. Well, I've just given myself away. If I call you brother or sister, it means I have no clue what your name is. You know, this goes for born-again believers in other churches as well. You do know that there's believers in other churches, don't you? (laughs) There are brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are other gospel-preaching pastors who used to be pagans. Speaking of another gospel pastor, I encourage you to check out this week's 4G podcast where I interviewed Ben Lovelady. He's the pastor at First Baptist Silvis about his love for the book of Genesis. Number three, increase your commitment to the local church. Let's just call it what it is. COVID hit the church hard. And there are still people not connected, and there are people who kind of like engaging online. And I'm glad we have online services because some can't come, but some can come, and they're out of the habit. There are some believers who are spotty in their attendance, and perhaps you're here today and you're searching for a church. We welcome. That's a hard journey, it's hard to know where God is leading. Uh, maybe some of you have been hesitant to become part of the church family here. So with a lot of grace, where people are at in different places, perhaps for you, it's time. It's time for you to join. It's time for you to step up. It's time for you to be here and to make a habit of being here every weekend unless you're sick or out of town or working Friends, listen, Scripture knows no such thing as solo Christianity. And sadly, it's a widely accepted practice among many professing Christians. I often hear people say when I meet them, I hear this so many times, it makes me cringe. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't really go to church. I'm like, what? Listen, mark this. The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. And one writer put it like this. Churchless Christians, flockless sheep, bodiless body parts. First century Christians would not have had a category for such a thing. It would have been one of the more bizarre phenomena imaginable. And finally, number four. 
be reconciled to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the tallest and thickest wall of hostility is not between you and a friend or a family member or a coworker or a church member. No, the thickest and highest wall is between us and a holy God. Our sins have caused a separation. Jesus has torn down the wall, but it's not automatically applied to everyone. You and I must accept that, appropriate what he has done and repent of our sins and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our shalom, so that we experience the peace he provides. And once you do, you'll be at peace with God. You'll be able to live in peace with others. I just finished an amazing true story. Perhaps you've read it. It's called Wounded Tiger. It's by T. Martin Bennett. This book traces the sovereignty and grace of God as three lives become intertwined when the gospel breaks down long-standing and bitter barriers during World War II. Let me, let me introduce the three characters. Fuchida was a Japanese nationalist. He's the guy who led the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Jake DeShazer was a bombardier on the Doolittle Raid when he unleashed bombs on Japan. And Peggy Covell grew up as a missionary kid in Japan. Now, the book is some 600 pages long, so my attempt at a summary will be inadequate, but here goes. Peggy's parents, missionaries, were beheaded by Japanese soldiers in the Philippines. When she grew up, she ministered to Japanese prisoners of war in a U.S. hospital. One of the prisoners later remarked, quote, that girl loved us like we were her own brothers, even better than brothers. Jake DeShazer was captured by the Japanese in China after dropping the bombs in Japan, went to China, parachuted out. He was brutally tortured in prison for like 14 months, brutally tortured by Japanese guards. When he was in prison, he was given a Bible somehow, which led him to getting saved. And after the war, he returned to Japan as a missionary. And in one of his sermons, he said these words, I attacked Japan for revenge. That's what I wanted. That's what every American wanted. I hated the Japanese for what they did at Pearl Harbor. Recognizing he needed to be freed from the power of hatred, he concluded, it wasn't evil around me I needed to be rescued from. It was from the evil inside me. He made this great sacrifice because of a great love for me and for you. In that dark cell, I was set free from the prison of hatred and a deep love for the Japanese people began to grow in my heart. Jake served the people of Japan for 30 years, helping to establish over 20 new churches. Well, let me tell you about Fuchida, the Japanese man who directed the attacks on Pearl Harbor. 
He was so impacted by Jake's conversion and by how Peggy, he heard the story of Peggy, this missionary kid who's now ministering to Japanese soldiers. He had never met her. He was so moved that he surrendered himself to Christ and was saved. This is a Japanese paper, top left. He attacked Pearl Harbor, but he's now become a follower of Jesus Christ. Fuchida went on to share the gospel with thousands of Japanese. Here's a picture of him sharing the gospel to 15,000 people in Japan. So watch this. The man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor was reconciled to God and in the process was reconciled to one of the men who bombed his own country. Here's a picture of him, the former commander who directed the attacks on Pearl Harbor, shaking hands with Jake, the former bombardier who dropped bombs on Japan. Friends, I submit to you that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. So whatever barrier you have up, whoever you're holding a grudge against that's turned into bitterness and you're like, I don't like that person, I'm done with that person. Whatever racial prejudice you got going in your heart, listen, Jesus came to get rid of those divisions, to break down that wall of hostility and to bring peace. The only walls of, these walls of hostility can only come down because Jesus has come down. And he's died in our place, providing peace with God and with others. 